Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Last time we were talking about, uh, we got into the part of the Book of Mormon that Corey and I said both when we were younger, we kind of, it was a place with no notes. We kind of skip over some of Isaiah's uh, deeper writings, but um, we started off looking at the scriptures more closely uh, as we talked about the Holy One of Israel and, and his uh, plan for salvation. And there were so many good gems here in Second Nephi that we thought we would just read through a couple chapters and just discuss the word. Corey, when the, the world falls apart as it seems to be just bubbling over here in the country, it's always fun to come here and just read the word with you and talk about it and, and just do what I enjoy the most, just the plan that God has for us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I take so much comfort in what you just said, too, because, Mike, I think over the, the years of our friendship, that that brings so much comfort to me being with you and talking about things where, you know, and we have, I think, common interests. And I I think it's true to say that there are certain things in life, I mean, that we're both aware of where we say things differently. It's not like we perfectly agree on everything or see everything either, you know, but it's mm-hmm. like, but the, the comfort in sharing with someone, you specifically, who, who just understands and who yearns for God's truth to understand that, that I just enjoy that. I think that's what just makes my heart beat in our conversations is just being with someone who just wants to earnestly seek and know the truth. Right. Well, I'm, I'm thankful that God has given me so many thorns in my side and weaknesses that I continually have to strive to wonder, uh, you know, am I ever going to be able to <laughs> be the person he's called me to be? So for those struggles, it leaves me searching, trying to find those keys to um, just yielding my heart to him. It's an it's a everyday struggle and ongoing um, struggle until until I am come home to be with my Lord. Yeah, yeah. But uh, hey, uh, so some exciting things we should bring up. I'll let you speak on some of the new things you've got on RestoreGospel.com. And also, we've started a Restore Gospel podcast YouTube channel. It's got uh, the first class that Corey's teaching in a series, What Does the Book of Mormon Teach? But you're able to watch the video and actually look at the PowerPoint and see uh, what he's talking about, and that's a class that started at Coburn Road Restoration Branch uh, last Sunday, and will be continuing on for several weeks or months in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. It feels good. I, I feel like I've been kind of like let out of a cage, so to speak, <laughs> able to kind of teach again. I feel, I mean, with people, but um, yeah, thankful for the technology too. You know, we hope. Uh, it can be a ministry to to share the word of God, and it's not like we're the only ones out there doing it. There's a lot of people, but we're thankful to just focus on, especially the Book of Mormon and the, the truth that it brings. Um, so, the, yeah, the class series is what does the Book of Mormon teach? And right now, we're hitting this a little bit from more of a, oh, I get fascinated with words. I think anymore, and the the authenticity of the Book of Mormon comes through in some of these things of Hebrew, and I don't speak Hebrew, but just things I'm learning about it and the language and the poetry and all this stuff that just fascinate me that when I look at this writing and think no farm boy in the 1800s just made this stuff up. It couldn't be, you know, that just thrills me. So so the first couple classes are kind of sharing some of that stuff right now. So some of it, yeah, it'll be things you heard on the podcast, but it's really cool to see the visual as we go through those things. Um, that's a... Uh, that adds a whole nother level to it. So if you go to YouTube and just search on Restore Gospel Podcast, you'll find it. There's also a link on, on Corey's uh, website, restoregospel.org. Uh, if you do go there, we ask just hit that subscribe button because uh, the more we get there, the, the better it is for people searching. And, and the goal of being on there is to hopefully find people in Israel and those that will come across the Hebrew nature of the Book of Mormon, that it would be a blessing to them. So Yeah, and you know, there's so much out there on on the Book of Mormon by scholars already, and there's also so much anti-Book of Mormon by people who may never have read it, but they just probably assume that there's something wrong. But, you know, I look at so much of the information out there, and, uh, you know, I, I love anyone who loves the Lord, but sometimes 
all the Book of Mormon is associated with is Mormonism. And one of the messages I think we're going to try to bring through is to separate any doctrine or even much church history from it and just read what the real doctrine of the Book of Mormon says. It's full and rich and complete. And and do that um, in a way where people can say, hey, whatever you've heard or thought about actions of men that have been associated with the word Mormonism, and, and in most of that, it brings negative connotation. But But to separate the actual Book of Mormon truth from all that, it's beautiful and it's refreshing to see this pure Word of God right there. And that's what we're trying to bring out through the videos. Well, what a great segue into you and I reading the Word of God. If, if you have your Book of Mormon handy, we're, uh, we're going to pick up in Second Nephi chapter 6. And, Corey, this is more uh, commentary, right? We've left the, the direct quotes of Isaiah. And now, as you said, some of the best commentary or the best commentary ever written to uh, explain Isaiah and God's plan for Gentiles and Jews. And a lot of these things were seen in the last days. Is uh, is explained by Nephi and Jacob. So, what do you got here in, in uh, verse six? Should we just start reading? And how do you want to do this? You know, when we were together last time, I think we read actually one verse, and that was so rich it just took us the rest of the podcast to kind of talk. Okay, about. but but it's it's interesting to me that Nephi and Jacob are writing brothers. Uh, writing about this thing they love the most, and that's the Lord. And when Jacob is writing, the younger brother of Nephi in Second Nephi 6, uh, he has just quoted Isaiah, as you mentioned, and then he explains in plain words <clears throat> what uh, kind of perplexes so many good Christians and even theologians of Isaiah's writing. And, and that's a gift into itself to have someone who knew the culture and understood the days, had the gift of prophecy, who could explain some of these things to us. So that's what we end up getting in Second Nephi 6 and 7. Let me let me read uh, the last three verses of, of chapter 5, uh, kind of the culmination of this long um, quote from Isaiah, if I can. And that'll probably set the stage for what they're going to explain here. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captor, captive daughter of Zion. So, we talked a lot, Corey, about the um, captivity of the Jews ever since, you know, the time of Jesus and when, when, when he was crucified and shortly thereafter, how they were taken captive and, and just recently came back to their homelands. And so he's speaking about them leaving that captivity and becoming his bride again, right? To become, put on your beautiful garments, um, yeah. no yeah. more coming to you, the un, the uncovenanted people, you know, the uncircumcised, the unclean. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. This whole, uh, the whole passage of Isaiah that's quoted uh, s- sort of starts off with how Israel has been rejected and then Israel becomes accepted. And just like we find in the Book of Mormon, Isaiah's writings have a chiastic nature to them too. And this, what we find is that at the, the center of all this, the writings of Isaiah, is that eventually the hearts of the people who rejected the Messiah now fully realize who he is and was. And this is when their captivity changes. This is when the Gentile nations who overran them previously, and we mentioned that a little bit in the previous podcast, you know, for generations, millennium really, um, now God says, I will contend with them that contend with you. Mm-hmm. And and this is this is powerful. So last time we told this story, and I, I think that's the only verse we really got to, I will contend with them that contend with you. In the in the week since we've got together last Mike, I learned the coolest thing. And this is this is beautiful. Um the Hebrew scholars who wrote the Book of Mormon and and many of the passages in the Bible were were gifted with this understanding of God, but they were gifted in that he blessed their minds. And some of the ways they show their giftedness is through the power of the language they use. Now, because we don't speak Hebrew, we don't get these things, but I I looked up this week, I thought I was studying this word for God 
In the original Hebrew, it was L E L. Is kind of how we translate it, and how how we talked. It was like back on episode I think seventy. Um, we talked about how God's name was derived from this Egyptian, like the staff and the ox head, and it meant like strong authority. And then we got the words for father and mother, and how they were all derived from similar words. Well, this word for God, there there was many meanings, but this L E L in English and Israel, that L part. Um, was the word God. And I thought, well, if that word Israel, God, was God, what was the other part? What was the Israel, or as they would say, Israel? What did that mean? And you know what it meant? It came from the story of the book where Jacob, who's before he's got all of his sons and he's a young man and he wrestles with the angel. It's in in Genesis. That contention they have was this Hebrew word Yisra. That means to contend. And this literal name of God <laughs> means God will contend. And this might be coming to a class near you here very shortly this weekend because I was so thrilled by this. I realized it's a beautiful play on words when in the English when it reads, I will contend with them that contends with you. And he's speaking to Israel. The very name Israel means God contends. And it's this double meaning, maybe triple meaning, where it's like God, the ones who says God will contend. He's saying, no, it's it's built into your name. It's built into me. It's built into our relationship. I'm going to contend with them who've, who've contended with you. And it's like all this, I can't even describe it, I think is... is um, the depth of this, I'm struggling for words because when the Israel is, when, when the Hebrews would read this verse, that God will contend, his name means I will contend, right? And, and, and not only just for anyone, but for Israel itself. So it's like been built into their identity forever that God would contend for them. But all they've got to look on through their past history is other people contending with them and dominating them. Mm-hmm. But this beautiful promise of Isaiah is that, and explained by Nephi and Jacob, is that, no, there's a day coming where all that gets turned on its head. It does a complete 180 turnaround in history, and the world sees that God is going to contend for this mighty people Israel because their hearts did a 180. Their hearts turned around and recognized him as the Messiah. That... uh that goes back to that picture you shared with with your dad putting his arm between you and that bully, and just telling him to scream. That's that's the the word picture. Hopefully that that God's explaining to them their very name. I'll be your protector. You know I'm I'm gonna and what isn't that a promise that I want to hang on to right now, Corey? For for us as uh, followers of Christ here in America, um, when we see that you know around the corner there's some probably some pretty dark days coming to know that that picture of God just putting his arm down between you and your oppressors and saying, scram, you know, to keep you safe. I, who knows? That's a, I did, that, <laughs> how'd you, how'd you get on that rabbit trail? How'd you get looking for that, that word? How'd you I'll track it down? Working on, working on Sunday school. And, you know, it's like, it's like sometimes um, lately, I, I I wasn't born understanding any of this stuff, and it, it's just like learning things and re- looking up other things. Um, I you know my practice. I, I like to get up early and have time with the Lord, and sometimes if it works out well, I try to spend you know a couple hours in the morning before I have to get busy on other things, just trying to read the Word. You know, and for as much as scripture searching, and you know, you might think, well, restore gospel. There's a lot of good scripture searches out there. That's that's maybe one of them. As handy as that is. There's, it still doesn't compare to sitting down in a quiet place and opening the book in front of me, you know, just opening. And it's in those moments when, you know, if I read for a couple hours, it seems like anymore I'll highlight things and I'll take pictures with my phone of things I want to come back to and study. So then I'll spend hours in the evening coming back to all the little notes I made in the morning. And it was in one of these moments where I'm just studying this week where I I looked at that name Israel and I remembered from our podcast that we had read that verse last time about he will contend. And then all of a sudden when I thought, you know, it's like the Lord, I think, puts these little questions in your mind. Well, I wonder what Israel even means, you know? And then to find it means he will contend. 
I, I just, I don't know. I get wrapped up in these things. Where mm-hmm. It's that you will never find the depth of the Lord's mystery, you know, and his complexity. And, and yet he's this God who says, yet I speak to you in plainness. You know, I go back to remember uh, years, uh, many years ago, I had told you the story of when my kids were little and they discovered the attic. Right. Right. And there's this pink insulation in these rafters and pipes and wires and all these things. And they had no idea any of it was there, but it didn't matter because the point of, for them being children was they lived in the home and they things they never saw. And that's the comfort God gives us in his word. His word is simple. His word is beautiful. And whether we understand the Hebrew meaning of these things or not, it doesn't really matter if we know who the God is, you know, of Israel in our heart. Right. Well, let's read Second uh, Nephi 6. He's going he's gonna to now talk to them. And so he's stepping out of this this uh, Isaiah quote and says, and now my beloved brethren, I've read these things that you might know concerning the covenants of the Lord that he had covenanted with the whole house of, or all the house of Israel. Right. And so everything that he explains now, um, and some of this, when we uh, uh, had talked about this from Isaiah or from he's quoting Isaiah and and now he's explaining it is these covenants that this whole promise to Israel is that one day they will be restored fully to God. And, and for generations they've been wondering kind of what's the problem, you know, we're keeping the Torah, we're keeping this law of Moses, even to this day, even though most of them, you know, they don't kill sheep anymore. They talk about the memories of that. There are actually some very Orthodox people who still do, you know, they'll sacrifice a lamb on the Sabbath and all that. And just, you know, don't tell the animal rights people, you know, of all this, but I mean, not, not on the Sabbath, I meant on Passover. Um, but that's very, very few. And that, that isn't really my point. The The larger point is that for so many of the Jews, they haven't had that veil removed of, of understanding or misunderstanding of who the Messiah is and how he was the type and shadow for all these sacrifices they were asked to keep for generations and all these mysterious symbols mm-hmm. of the law. They didn't get that. But the covenants that Nephi and Jacob explain here begin to tell how that's going to happen and and how that heart finally changes. And what we're holding in our hands, even right now, I th- believe this record of Joseph, the Book of Mormon, is um, part of that journey. That he hath spoken unto the Jews by the mouth of his holy prophets, even from the beginning down from generation to generation, until the time cometh that they shall be restored to the true church and fold of God. And we talked about like uh, the road to Emmaus when Jesus was explaining all things to the disciples. Um, the Book of Mormon is much more clear, so we think. And there's there's prophets that we don't have the words of that are quoted often on Zenos and Zenoch. Yep. Um, and so even from the beginning, it says from every generation to generation until— They'll continue to speak until they're restored and become the true church and fold of God. Mm-hmm. When they shall be gathered home to the lands of their inheritance and shall be established in all their lands of promise. And we saw, you had a graph one time, Corey, to show the number of Jews, I think, from like around early 1800s when the Book of Mormon came forth till now and how the graph just swung clear up to, to the population of Israel. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It was at the very time. And it's, uh, the, the, the chapters of Mormon, I think it's chapter 1, verse 82, is one of the references to that where it says, hey, when this work comes forth, this work being this work of Joseph returning to the Gentiles, that's the time when Israel is going to begin to return to their homeland. And it's exactly that way. Uh, it's also repeated in Third Nephi 13, verse 54. Let, let me read one of these scriptures. In sure. Fact, I might read them both. I'm just flipping ahead to Mormon chapter 1, verse 82. Therefore, I write unto you Gentiles and also unto you, house of Israel, when the work shall commence, that ye shall be about to prepare to return to the land of your inheritance. And that's, you know, when the work shall commence, that you're going to be about to return to the land. And if you look at that chart, it's in the final prophecy if you go there online. But um, there's a strong correlation with no Jews in Israel and in, in the land of Palestine. They've been scattered around the earth. And then shortly around, you know, the 18, mid-1800s, when this work comes forth, you start to see the population of, of true Jewish descendants back in Israel again. Mm-hmm. 
Behold, my beloved brethren, I speak unto you these things, that you may rejoice and lift up your heads forever, because of the blessings which the Lord God shall bestow upon your children. For I know that thou hast searched much, many of you, to know of things to come. Wherefore, I know that you know that our flesh must waste away and die. Nevertheless, in our bodies, we shall see God. And that's a concept we don't question, really, as Christians. But early on, that concept of what happens when the body sleeps, or that's one way to put it, or the flesh goes into the ground, you know, what happens to our soul? And there's so many things in the Book of Mormon that clears that up. You know, one of the things that I love about Jacob and Nephi's writing specifically is they have the same gift of this poetic parallelism that Isaiah right. had. And we don't, um, we haven't talked in depth about that in this section, but it's, it's here and it's everywhere. And like we were talking about how sometimes it's easier to see things with a PowerPoint. It's hard to, hard to point it out sometimes and just listen to it. It's easier to see it. But this verse you read in verse 7, uh, nevertheless in our bodies we shall see God. He continues that parallelism in verse 8 where then he, this is him speaking plainly, and he says, yea, and I know that you will see, will know that in the body he will show himself unto they that are at Jerusalem from whence we came. So it's like he's talking about how, hey, we're going to see God in our bodies like he's referring to the last day, and then he makes this poetic Parallel, and we know that in the flesh, he's going to show himself in our in our you know maybe not in his lifetime, but in this world to those in Jerusalem. You know, so th- we're going to see God in two ways. We're going to meet him in, at Judgment Day, but we're going to see him in the flesh on yeah. the earth too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Nine says it's expedient he should he should be among them. It behooveth the great Creator that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh and die for all men that all men might become subject unto him. And we've, we've read that several times, but that's, that's just one of those key scriptures in the Book of Mormon that that's, you can base theology on, uh, a great definition or a great picture of God presenting himself. Yeah, God, you know, and don't you love the language here in verse 10? The great creator. I mean, how, how can anyone miss this? This is his point all along because Isaiah is the, the prophet whose favorite term for God is the Holy One of Israel. And I was just looking, and Nephi and Jacob use that term over 27 times in their writings. Sometimes it's quoting Isaiah, sometimes it's their own. But but here he continues to say this great creator is going to become subject to man in the flesh. There, there, there's, there's no mincing the words here that he will take on flesh, and not only take on flesh, be subject to man. Here's here's the Savior washing the feet of the disciples, right? I mean, in, in a sense that he's going to be the lowliest of the low. He's going to let man trample him, spit upon him, you know, pull its, his hair out of the roots, hang him on a on a wooden cross to, to bleed to death and die. And this, so that we could become subject to him. Right, and it's all out of love because if we don't become his subjects, as he then writes later on, we become subjects of the devil. He's yeah, in, you become subject to one or the other. Your name is called after Christ, or it's called by something else, and you don't want that name. I was listening to a song this week by uh, artist Audrey Assad, and there's a song she has called "Fortunate Fall," and when you think about that, the song's about how fortunate it was that that man fell. Like the Book of Mormon says, well, she doesn't say that, but the, the concept's the same, so that we may be, and that um, that we would come to know Christ mm-hmm. through through that, um, and that's what he says here, and what he's starting to get into, um, that as death has passed upon all men, to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs by be a power of resurrection, not to leave us dead. And that resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression. And here's where the Book of Mormon just shines, I think, and adds so much theology, so much wisdom to Adam and Eve in the garden that is missing in the Bible. By, by reason of the fall, they fell, and the fall came by reason of transgression. I'm in verse 14. And because man became fallen... They were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement 
and save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Corey, what's those those two words mean when it says this corruption? Is he talking about the body? Yeah, this body, and I think this, in a larger sense, this world, this sinful life. You know that we that other the corruption is that the fact that everything here dies, decays, falls apart. You know what is someday will be is not, and and yet the promise is that someday we can be in a different existence where bodies don't die and get sick, and life lives in a happy happy state of eternity. So the and and I love this because corruption and incorruption is just another parallel. You've got the thing that corrupts and is going to die and the thing that won't ever corrupt and live forever. And he compares this. Okay. Wherefore the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so this flesh must have laid down to rot, to crumble to its mother earth, to rise no more. That is so mm-hmm. poetic. Isn't that something? Now this whole from passage eleven to eighteen in second Nephi six, um, is a beautiful example of what they call in the Hebrew poetry a staircase parallelism. And okay. that's, that's a term that they use that the Hebrew uh, scholars use. And what what you see and, and the way the staircase works is just like when you take a step. You go up one step, then the next, and the next, and the next. Every verse has an explanation of the previous, or it continues. So in verse 11, it's talking about the death and then the power of resurrection. And then in the beginning of 12, it talks about the resurrection, and it ends with the fall. And in 13, it starts with the fall, and then it ends with the transgression. And in 14, it, it be, talks about the consequence of the fall, and being cut off from the Lord. And so then it takes this and it kind of backs it out in a way where, but the, there's also a chiastic aspect to this. And I, and I don't want to bog us down with this, but the the center of it all is there has to be an infinite atonement. And then, and then he backs it out where the infinite atonement is God. And if, if it wasn't, you know, we would be dead and we would have no, no hope again. But this is a, um, another thing to point out is, 17, this term first judgment, when he says this first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. That means our separation from God right now, that all humanity is separated from God. That would have been forever. That's the first judgment. That's what we're uh, thankful to Jesus that it's not going to have an endless duration because of his sacrifice. But the only way it could be remedied was it required an infinite sacrifice. So the infinite sentence on us had to be resolved by having an infinite sacrifice. It couldn't be any other way. So that word infinite atonement is one that you hear a lot, you hear a lot, but over and over, infinite atonement, that that's the building block of our faith. That's the center of our faith um, and just something you have to accept even if your mind can't comprehend. I mean, we can't really comprehend infinity or eternity as we are now until it's revealed to us, you know, in some way by the Spirit. But infinite atonement, God knew when, when, when he made us and when man fall that that was going to be the price that was going to have to bring man back to him to fulfill his purpose. Right. It's, so... 19 says, The wisdom of God is mercy and grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel which fell from the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. What did what did that just say about the devil, Corey? What was he? Yeah, He was this, an angel. Right. That's all the information the Book of Mormon gives us, too. I know from other scripture we might get a little different picture, but just sticking with what the Book of Mormon says, you know, that, it's it points out something very uh, interesting about this nature of creation. No scripture indicates that there was some devil that tempted the devil, that he acted strictly on his agency. Uh, and that opposition in all things is this eternal principle that it exists and that somehow Satan's actions were simply his own will exerting over God's will, just like ultimately... That's what mankind's sin is, that as Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't that Satan had to force it in their mouth. He just was like a good salesman who um, hey, suggested, hey, don't you think this might be a good fruit to eat? Sure looks tasty to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's 
ultimately the power of Satan is what we give him is the ability to suggest to our minds, use your will over God's will. And so this Satan who falls, um, we, we become grouped with him forever because that umbrella over that whole classification of people with Satan are those who decided that their will was more important than God's will, you know, and that we become subject to him. He becomes our leader because he was the one who led the way of being willful and rebellious. Now that word willful is really interesting. Uh, I won't go into the details of this. You can find it at restoredgospel.com. I've, I've got a little section on, um, on important words, and one of them is this word "willful." Um, in fact, and just I'll just take a second with this. Actually, it's probably actually worth doing. Uh, if you you can find this if you go to the top banner where it says "study," and then there's a section called "significant Hebrew words" found in the Book of Mormon. This is a growing list, but this word "willful" is uh, it "willful" or "willfully" or "willfulness." They only occur in the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm talking about in the English language. Uh, and, and willfulness is different than just sin out of ignorance. Willfulness is something the Book of Mormon talks about where, uh, like in Moroni 9.24, this is at the very end of the Nephite story, the end of their civilization as Moroni is left to kind of tap into the plates the final days of his society. And he talks about how these people have become so evil. He writes this, Moroni 9, 24, For I know they must perish, except they repent and return unto him. And if they perish, it will be like the Jaredites because of the willfulness of their hearts, seeking for blood and revenge. In other words, the willfulness is like... Desire. It was, huh? it was desire, right. Exactly. They desired to sin. What they wanted. Right. It, it, their hearts had become so wicked. And this is where, this is what borders, this is the meaning of blasphemy, okay? We, we sometimes think, oh, blasphemy is saying something about God. No, it's deeper than that. It's when, just like willful, no, you know... You know not to sin, and you do it anyhow. We've all had moments like that in our lives with certain levels of sin, you know, whether it's something we watch or say or do or or something, you know, in that. We know what willfulness can be. But in this, the willfulness is direct expression to God. It's like, I know who you are, and I don't care. You know, that's that's the condition of the heart that can't be saved, that can't be changed. When we get to that point where we die in that sin mm-hmm. of that life, that's what he says, that is eternal. That's what blasphemy means. Well, the reason this is an interesting word in the English language is for this reason. I won't go through all the verses, but in the English translations, I, I, if you look at Restore Gospel, you can see this. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, probably 15 different versions of the Bible that quote, a phrase from Jeremiah and Jeremiah 18 says uh, it's no use. They will continue on their own and they will follow in the stubbornness of their hearts, the stubbornness of their evil hearts. The word stubbornness in every place in the Bible is actually, if you look in Strong's concordance now was actually the Hebrew word for being willful, but the word willful was never used in any of the modern English translations. And when I was reading out of this Hebrew Bible recently, I was reading, and this Hebrew Bible has the Hebrew, which I can't read, but has the English translation and the modern translation on the other side. It had this word willful. I'm like, hey, where did I hear willful from? So, you know, I do a scripture search like everyone else. And I thought, wait a minute, that's in the Book of Mormon. And so there's a few verses, um, Mosiah 8, talks about, this is interesting, Abinadi's speech says to King Noah, this is what Alma picks up on that converts his heart. Yea, all those who have perished in their sins ever since the world began that have willfully rebelled against God, that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them. Well, here the the word willful is totally in the context of, no, when you know and you don't do it, that's that's what willful means. Well, the the beautiful thing about this is that without the help of Strong's Concordance, the Hebrew scholars say, no, we're not talking about people who sin in ignorance. We're not even talking about stubbornness. The real word for this is willful. And so when when I see these words that appear only, and one of these was in a, a Bible called the the Israel Bible. I just bought one recently, and it's a, another Hebrew-English Um 
the Hebrew English Bibles today all use this word willful. The Book of Mormon uses this word willful because it captures the nuance of the heart, right? It's not just ignorance and sin. But the Bibles in Joseph Smith's day, none of them had that word. So how would he have known to use that word, right? And it, it's not right here in this passage of 2 Nephi 6. It's in other parts of the, of the Book of Mormon, but and you can scripture search them to find out. But the reason I bring this up is this is the differentiation, right? Uh, the, the flesh that would rise no more. If Jesus had not died, none of us would have had a chance. But there are people who, it says, will become subject to Satan, and those are the ones who then knowing everything they, there is to know, would still, in their hearts, willfully rebel against him. Right? And that's, that's part of what Satan's whole plan is, because Satan was one of these people who, knowing everything he knew about eternity, willfully rebelled against God. So that's, that becomes the classification of us if we choose to openly rebel against God. We're seeing some of this today. He says in 21, our spirits must have become like unto him, like talking about the devil who fell. And we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of our God and remain with the father of lies in misery like unto himself. And 22 says, yea, to that being who beguiled our first parents, who transformeth himself into nigh unto an angel of light, and stirreth up the children of men unto secret combinations of murder and all manner of secret works of darkness. Yeah. I was talking with a friend this week who's on the complete opposite political spectrum of me, and we were just talking, and, and you know, he's talking about conspiracy theories on one side and, and conspiracy theories on the other, and I said, I said, I don't know, buddy, what, how much is a conspiracy and how much is... Uh, organized, but I know this, that the devil just stirs up the hearts of men to commit evil. And we're seeing that in so many ways today, whether it's organized or not organized, anywhere he can get into and any crack he can find in the armor of a, of a human's heart, he is stirring them up. And uh, I reminded him what Paul says about this, that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against uh, the powers of darkness and the wickedness and the spiritual powers. And that's what I think we're seeing right now in our country, that this devil stirs up the hearts of men unto secret combinations of murder in all manner of works of darkness. But the next scripture is the hope. Oh, how great the goodness of our God who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster. Uh, we think about the, the wickedness in so many ways right now in, in our country and across the world, but we're seeing it here that we haven't really seen in these ways in, in modern times as much as we are right now. Yeah, yeah, it it's, seems to be starting to boil over, doesn't it? Yeah. But it says, God prepares a way for our escape from this awful monster, death and hell, which I call the death of the body and the death of the spirit. I think we touched on this one other time. Uh, death and hell uh, means the body and the spirit. Yeah. In this in this next several, oh, 20 or 30 verses starting at like 20, even in 23, you know, the, I love these contrasts. These are just something that helped me in my understanding when I see them in the, in the parallel. You know, in 23... He contrasts light and darkness. In, in 24 through about 40, you see parallels of, of death of the body and death of the spirit. When we talk about hell and paradise. You see words of temporal and spiritual. You see um, things being restored by the power of resurrection, the paradise of the righteous, the, you know, the, the darkness of the wicked place, all these different parallels that are taught exactly the way Isaiah did it, but in, in a beautiful explanation. And this whole covenant, you know, where Nephi or Jacob rather starts writing in second Nephi six, when he starts explaining these things, the first words you read, where he says, now I've written these things. So you might know the covenants of the Lord that he was covenanted with all the house of Israel. And, and he talks about how down into the, the day that they become restored in, into their land. Well, this um, this is interesting because uh, while I said I wasn't going to read a couple of these scriptures, I just turned in this Hebrew Bible I have. I want to read a couple of these out of Jeremiah because 
the wording of this matches the wording of the Book of Mormon so beautifully, and it matches the contrast of the willfulness against God. But now, here's out of a Hebrew translation. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of Hashem. Hashem is the, the word for God. And all nations shall assemble there in the name of Hashem at Jerusalem, and they shall no longer follow the willfulness of their evil hearts. Isn't that interesting that these the the willfulness of the nation of Israel over generations was became against God, even though sometimes they didn't know they're doing it. But but then their willfulness will be the thing they give up and they turn to Him. Um, this is beautifully described. I mean, as we go on, this part of the next twenty. Verse 24, and well, let me say this. This is what I, I something I picked up on. Um, Jacob's writings here in Nephi 6, for the rest of this, seems to talk about salvation from a temporal sense of the body not rotting in the grave forever and our spirit dying with it. He talks, he, he talks about that, how the body and the soul have hope. But then in Nephi's writings coming up in the in the next couple chapters when Nephi starts to write on the plates again, what we find he's talking specifically about Israel not dying and Israel having hope. So 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 Jacob's point is more about spiritual terms of resurrection for mankind. And Nephi ends up starting to write about, you know, the spiritual resurrection of Israel, if you will. You know, like mm-hmm. there even the brothers are paralleling each other, each other writing and they're all going back to Isaiah to show this. It's it's kind of a neat thing when you look at the chapters from a thirty thousand foot view. But anyhow, just I I just wanted to mention that these these parallels are really cool. The willfulness that once existed changes. And and as you point out, they go um they go through all these things of, of death and the grave and the spirit not dying, all back to this one, the goodness of our God. He mentions the merciful plan of our Savior, the, the wisdom of our God. All these things, he points back to God, this Holy One of Israel is the one that's going to do that for them. Yeah, verse 36 says, It shall come to pass when all men shall have passed from this first death unto life, insomuch as they have been immortal, they must appear before the judgment seat of the Holy One of Israel. And who who is that? that Christ. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we find he writes. this In 2 Nephi 6, he uses the Holy One of Israel many times. But in 2 Nephi 7, he says, oh, and by the way, I was told last night his name will be called Jesus Christ. Right. You know, this is the guy he's talking about. So this one that we appear before is the one who took on flesh. The Book of Mormon explains this clearly. And it, it, Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to jump ahead, but maybe you had something else you want to say about that. Well, we were talking about judgment in Sunday school class a few weeks ago and whether it was— who was doing the judging, but this very clearly states every man whose heart stops beating in this physical world appears before the judgment seat of the Holy One of Israel, which we know to be Christ, and then cometh the judgment. And this is uh, important to read through, I think, because this is talking about um, what's going to happen to every one of us, and we can't remind ourselves of this too often. Uh, in conversation this week with a friend, he said, I, I choose to believe in myself created by a third entity. You know, created, I, I'm a created being, but I, I choose to believe in myself and the, the knowledge and stuff that I gained, you know, through life. And I think that that's wrong. I think the only true knowledge we have, the only true, the only truth that we have comes through the the intelligence of our creator, because we are created beings. We cannot learn things on our own unless we're corrupted and believe lies because there's that opposition, that father of all lies seeking to get us to believe anything but truth. Mm-hmm. And right now, truth is so hard to to find and to know what truth is because there's different um, you know, sources. People people are so willing to believe lies now that whatever yeah. whatever is easily accessible to them through their phone or media and is easily whatever's easiest to see is what they're going to believe. You know, no one wants to go digging for sources and is this no. correct or no. uh, it's just whatever's put out there and feels right. That's what is going to be my truth. And that's just 
so so wrong in so many ways. You know, I was listening to a little talk show earlier today, just not something I do that often anymore, but it was interesting because these these guys are well-known names on TV and radio. It doesn't matter who they are. But what one of the commentators pointed out in, in context of what you mentioned, like, hey, you know, there's crazy stuff going on in the world. The one commentator said to the other, you know what? His, he said, this is the way I'm seeing it. He said, people in our nation are for the first time openly enjoying evil. It's like, maybe not for the first time. I, I shouldn't say it that way, but where it's like, there's, there's no public shame. It's like they, it's not just evil. They're openly running on hatred, you know? And it's like this hatred of in the political sense. And, you know, this is like, they're, they're just, they loathe people now. And it's like obvious. It's not just like a difference in political ideology or ideas. It's like they're motivated by hatred and, our nation never really experienced that before. I would say even in the days of the Civil War in the 1800s, people were motivated by ideology, which really slavery, when it came down to it, was all about money. It wasn't about the people. It was just, hey, we can make more money selling our cotton if we don't have to pay people to pick it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to, hate to be so simple about it because slavery was so awful and heinous in so many ways and is wherever it happens. But yet at the same time, I don't think the North and South people hated each other. It was just like, well, some people want to do business this way and some people weren't. And then they got, they got, you know, this mob mentality about it and went and clashed and, and formed a war. But right now it's like the difference in our culture is it seems people are motivated by hatred. And it's like, that's the, that's the worst evil of all, you know? Yeah. When you, when you start to look at other people and not regard them as created beings from a creator, then they lose all, I think, all significance. Exactly, exactly. They're not living souls. They're just people in my way to be done away with. And that's part of the falling, I think, of a, of a nation that's no longer has Christian values is um, I don't see other people as having any value. They're not created beings. You know, they, they deserve to die and get out of the way for whatever kind of lifestyle I want to live. Yeah, and and it's so true. It's like whenever a nation adopts this idea that, hey, well, we're not created in God's image. We're just people. And then if, you know, I I don't want to get into other topics of, you know, things about (laughs) the the worst euphemism of all choice, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, is the the way it's used in our climate. Um, The whatever whatever social political context it's presented in the bottom line is whenever you adopt this idea that this greatest uh, i want to say it this way i i read this in one of these hebrew bibles as well it's sort of an intro and it's so beautiful because when you consider this the, this uh rabbi actually wrote this that god only created two things in this whole universe two things and he said he created the whole universe and and everything on this earth, the trees, the plants, the waterfalls, the 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 ground, everything, and then he created the humans to inhabit. You know, there was a whole creation, and then the second piece was the piece that was made in God's image, and and the two greatest responsibilities. I mean, and and it was the fact that you know this Hashem, this this God who they they believe is so great they couldn't even utter his name, so they said Hashem instead breathed his own life into this part of the creation to make us the unique things walking this earth. And and the greatest responsibility to consider that any human could ever have would be to take the life of another human. Now, you know, capital punishment and all that is, is what it is in our nations. But the point is when Cain kills Abel, that was the worst of all crimes that humans could commit to each other because you're taking this thing that God created to be this unique thing in this whole universe is, is people. And, and so what a responsibility to take someone's life, but on an equal hand, there's a beautiful spiritual parallel in the fact that, you know, through procreation humans, you know, having sexual intercourse and, and, but not just in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense two becoming one, that's one of the most beautiful things that God gave, you know, protected within marriage. And it's one of the greatest responsibilities because 
the outcome is is a child, someone who's of your blood, you know, your flesh, who then you are responsible for too, right? To bring him up and to teach him or her or whatever. But this greatest responsibility we've been given is to protect life, right? And to and to and to sanctify it and realize it's exactly what you said. As soon as people think we're not creating God's image anymore, the whole structure falls apart. And that's what I see the problem of our day is all leaning towards hate each other, you know, but but then devalue life to the point where it doesn't matter anymore because we, we have no connection to God. That's Satan's plan. That's how he wants to destroy us. Yeah, and and that's why I found it significant uh, that one of, one of the first acts of the new Congress, quote, was to approach this subject of gender and to do away with it in all language in the House, the governing body, that, uh, and, and, and I balance my friend and I bounce things off of each other because we're so far polar opposite. But he's like, ah, you know, people can call themselves whatever they want, do whatever they want, just you know, leave me out of it. And it, but it doesn't work that way when it because the culture starts accepting that um, you know God's very basic plan for human flourishing is not is not appropriate. It's not real. It's not there anymore. Yeah, and we can. We're all like little gods unto ourselves to do whatever we will when we start changing our very, very nature and recognizing that we were created in his image, male and female. Yeah. That's yeah. There, there's deeper levers levels of evil there than just uh someone feeling ostracized. Exactly. There's a evil, evil plan there. Exactly. And it's all disguised in things of politics and it's it's way, way worse than that. Well, so this is um, maybe we. I don't know if we should break here because we're we're going to get into a place, and and this is very important and and something that you shouldn't skip over, and that we should we should never not take the time to read, even though we've discussed it again. And that is what happens when you stand before that judgment bar of the Holy One of Israel. And that's something that should be at the forefront of our mind all the time because that's where everything is leading. Everything is leading to that place. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, for those of you listening, it is a wintry, snowy day here in Independence, Missouri. And uh, Corey braved the weather to come out and discuss the Word of God at the cottage studio. So I'm glad for him coming by. Yeah. And... um while you're uh, enjoying this warm place, just remember that someday we're going to have a warm place uh, with the Lord when we all walk each other home back to Him. Till next time. Mm-hmm.